Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, although we're going to read a little bit in chapter 19 as well. Um, I have a few things to say before we get started, but just to, to prepare when we dig into, into God's word here in a few minutes. I want you to think about a time in your life, and maybe there's one time that really comes to your mind, um, especially, or maybe more like me, you can, this just this constant um, sort of occurrence, where you, you really messed up, where you really did something that you, you failed. Maybe you spail, failed spectacularly and um, hurt a lot of people, maybe hurt people that you were close to, um, maybe, maybe it's just a daily sort of thing where you, you wrong people that are close to you, um, and that you need to ask for forgiveness. And when you ask for forgiveness, and hopefully this is something of life practice of yours, that you receive grace, um, from that other person. Forgiveness is a, is a gift. It's not something that's earned. One of the things I, I love about being a husband and a, a parent, but at the same time, I, I, I don't love so much is that, um, wow, it reminds me of my sinfulness. It really does. Um, and, and I'm sure you can think of other relationships if you're not uh, married or you don't have um, children. But when you're in close relationship with people, um, you sin against them a lot. That's one of the consequences of being in close relationship. And um, as I've been a parent, I, one of the things I really want to teach my children, I think my parents did a good job teaching me. I, I just remember that when I sinned um, against my dad, and it might be a level five sin against my dad. And my dad had a level one sin against me. My dad would always be the one who would come to me and ask for my forgiveness. It actually irritated me a little bit because I didn't even get a chance to do it first. But he really, he modeled that really well. And one of the things I really want to model to my children is that, that's that very same thing. That when I sin against them, that I ask for, for their forgiveness. But when you, when, you, when you sin against somebody and you ask for forgiveness, it's, it's a reminder of your need for grace, of your need for grace. When, when, you're the, when you're the dad and you sin against your children, um, you've wronged them. You've wronged them. You're the one who's supposed to be the mature one. You're the one who's supposed to model um, Christ to them. You're the one who's supposed to lead them well. And um, unfortunately, sadly, I, I sin against them too. And I have to ask them for forgiveness and when they forgive me, that's, that's grace that they're extending in my way. And I receive grace. And there's times I have to ask my wife for forgiveness. And there's times I have to ask other people that I'm in close relationship with for forgiveness. And as I receive forgiveness, it's an act of grace. And this is so important for us to, re- to, to receive grace and to be reminded that honestly, the, so much of what we have, we don't deserve. That so much of what we have, we don't deserve. If there's something about being a Christian that should change your worldview, it's, it's, it's this idea that we don't deserve what we have. So salvation, as we know, if you've been in church for a long time, or even for a little, a little amount of time, you've probably heard salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works. It's lest anybody should boast. It's something that is received. It's given. It's not earned. It's not merited. But this is, this is difficult for us. And sometimes when I hear sermons on grace or teachings on grace, or if I'm reading about grace, to be frank and honest with you, I, I get a little bit, um, all right, let's move on. This is pretty elementary stuff. That's kind of my response to it. I've heard this so much um, that I, I just want to move on to something a little bit deeper, to something a little bit more complex, to something a little bit more interesting, because I know that salvation is by grace. And I know that I don't deserve it. I, I get it. Can we, can we just keep going? Go on to something else. But this is so, so, so difficult for us because it's so contrary to how the rest of the world works. It really is. The rest of the world does not operate by grace. 
Um, I don't know about you, but I've worked lots of different jobs, not only being a teacher and being a pastor and those sorts of things. I've worked other jobs. And when I get a salary, I earn that salary. I do. I work hard. I sweat for it. I earn that salary. And when I get, when I get a check, it's based on how many hours I put in. And it's, it's in some sense based in merit. And this is how the world works in general, that what you receive, you've earned it. And when I, you know, I work hard and if I see somebody else slacking off, I want to be paid more than they do. I still do. And I think I deserve to be paid more than they do because I worked harder. That's how the world works. We all know this. This is how we live life on this earth that you work hard. You put sweat in, you put tears into your job and you, you really put everything you have and you're expecting to get some, something back, something that you've earned or that you deserve. But when it comes to the church, when it comes to Christ, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, you don't earn any of it. You don't earn any of it. And this is difficult for us because we, we want to keep some of the glory and some of the credit back. We want to be able to have some merit for our salvation. This is not easy for us to receive grace because when we receive grace, what we're saying is I don't deserve this. When we receive something as a gift of grace, we're saying I don't merit this. I don't deserve this. And we want to merit something. We want to deserve it. So keep that in mind as we go, go into the text here in a few minutes. I want to spend a few minutes in review of, of the last few chapters of Matthew to bring it up to this point, because I think this will help us to understand today's text. So in, in the section of your, of your notes titled Review, that's where I'm at here this morning. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus preaches the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And his message is twofold. John the Baptist has the same basic message to repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But in Jesus' kingdom, and this is something we see throughout the Gospels, especially in Matthew, um, Luke as well. But the righteous, the pious, the wealthy, and the, the, the well-connected usually miss out on the kingdom. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, in the last week's text, the rich young ruler, the people who are well-connected, the righteous people, the pious people, the well-educated people, they miss out on the kingdom. And it's tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners who are welcomed into the kingdom. Not the people that you would expect. And this is not because God only loves sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He, um, if you remember in last week's text, and I, I find this moving, that he looked at the rich young ruler this person with high position, this, this person who is wealthy, this person who is well-connected. And, and it says Jesus loved him and had pity on him. He looked at him, had compassion on him. He loved the rich young ruler. He doesn't just love tax collectors and prostitutes. He, he loved him too. But the reason why it's, it's tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and not rich young rulers that are inheriting the kingdom of God is that entrance to the kingdom requires a recognition of one's need for repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand requires that you recognize I need to repent and I'm in need of grace. I'm in need of salvation. I can't merit it. And the person who won't acknowledge or can't acknowledge his need for grace does not receive it. In our text three weeks ago, Jesus told his disciples that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must become like little children. That you must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as Pastor Tyler preached, the childlike faith that is required for the kingdom of heaven isn't childlike ignorance or childlike naivete. It's humility. And that's usually associated, especially in, in the context of, of, of the first century, with childhood. Child, children in the ancient world had no status. They had no place. 
Um, their value was based on their potential of who they could be, but not in who they were at the moment. That, sh- that children weren't seen as having much status or value um, in, that, in, in who they were, but just in who they could be. But Jesus is saying that entrance to the kingdom of heaven requires humility and childlike dependence upon God. It's recognizing, it's seeing yourself as a child uh, and not as somebody who's great. And in last week's text, Jesus encountered a rich young ruler who, although he claimed to have kept the whole law, he says, from youth, he could not turn from his, his possessions to follow Christ. He could not do it. It was too difficult. Jesus exposed in him the failure of human beings to merit the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom can only be received by those who turn from their attempts to achieve worth, merit, and value themselves to Christ. So in today's text, Jesus confronts his disciples and our assumptions about the economy of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to use the word economy. And when when I use the word economy, I just mean the way things work. The way things work in the kingdom of heaven. In the world's economy, your merit is based in what you do or in who you know or in who your parents are. In different places, different cultures, different times, value those things differently. But it's based in something that you can claim merit for. The kingdom of heaven, however, operates purely by grace. And although this really is good news, and I hope you hear and receive this as good news, it's good news that salvation is by grace. Our hearts have a very difficult time accepting this because we want to withhold for ourselves some of the glory, some of the credit, some of the merit for our salvation. But Jesus' message is radical. It's as radical today as it was then. It's all grace. It's all grace. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to move into today's text. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the truth that we hear in your word. Thank you for your spirit who works in our hearts, and I pray that as, as we look at your, at your word this morning, as we hear the, the words from, from Christ this morning, that your spirit will work in our hearts and that we will receive it. Father, our hearts want some credit, some glory. We, we, we want some pride, some place. That's not what you offer us, Father. You offer us salvation by, by grace. Help us to receive that, not only as, as salvation and, and, and saving faith, but also in the, in the day-to-day um, doldrums and, and cycles of our lives. Help us to receive your grace. Help us to accept grace as a gift and not as something that's earned. And help us to see other people through the eyes that that you see us, that we will extend grace to others because we have been given so much. Give us hearts of gratitude um, to respond to your grace with thankful hearts and with gracious attitudes. Um, Father, work in our hearts as we look at your word this morning, and we pray in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to start in chapter 19, verse 23. I'm just going to read through the end of the chapter and have a couple brief things to say about, about this passage. It's from last week's, but, uh, last week's sermon, but I, I think it's helpful in understanding today's sermon because Jesus is going to tell a parable and he's really responding to a question of Peter's. So I think we need Peter's question in mind as we, as we go. So chapter 19, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, this is right after the rich young ruler leaves, truly I say to you, only with difficulty... Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What will we then have? 
Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So in response to the rich young ruler's failure to leave everything behind, Peter very helpfully points out, and I can imagine being Peter at this point. Here's this rich young ruler that everybody looks up to. He can't leave everything behind. Hey, Jesus, I, we left everything behind actually. So what you ask him to do, we did. So, um, what do we get? That's essentially what Peter is asking. What do we get? We left everything. And Jesus affirms that Peter and others who leave everything to follow him will have the reward and obtain eternal life. But then he says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And the parable following in chapter 20 is really a response to Peter. So let's move back into the text. Chapter 20, verse 16 verses. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And in going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand idle here all day? And they said to him, because nobody has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they were going to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The the setting of this parable would be rather familiar in Jesus context. This is, this is a normal sort of occurrence. So when it came time for harvest, landowners would go into the city, they'd go into the marketplace and they they would hire people and they would hire people. You could think of them as temps. I don't know if um, you've ever been to a temp agency. I have actually. So I've been, I've worked as a temp before. And when you, when you get hired as a temp, um, you have no guarantees. You don't get any benefits. Um, you work at the pleasure of the, of the employer. I need five people for five days and you're one of them. You work for five days and that's it. That's just the way it works. Um, you don't have any guarantee of a sixth day. Um, maybe sometimes people work as a temp and then they get hired on full, but you have no guarantees. You are hired for that day's work or for however many days work that you get. And this is pretty similar. It's not that different from the way temp agencies work today. So a landowner needs people. He needs them for harvest. This isn't a full-time job. This isn't for their whole year. This is just to harvest his crops. And in this case, it's grapes. So typically, if you go out into the the marketplace and you're looking for workers, who do you think you're going to hire in the morning when you're hiring workers? You're going to hire the big, strong guys, right? The people who can work hard. Maybe they have a reputation. You've probably been to the marketplace many times before. You know the people who work hard. Now, there's also other people. There's some people who may not get hired that often. 
And for a variety of reasons, maybe, maybe they're, they're sick, they're sickly. Um, maybe they're infirmed in some way. Maybe they're, they're disabled. They can, they're hobbling around. They can barely walk, uh, but they're hungry and they want, they want some work so they can eat. And in those days, a denarius is a day's wages. It's not enough to put some in the bank. This is enough to eat for the day. And that's what the people going to the marketplace are hoping is they're hoping to have enough food to eat for the day. Um, and the people who are, are big strapping guys, those guys are going to get hired. And if people are desperate enough, they might hire the other, the, the other people. But if not, you're kind of out of luck. And so maybe you would hang out in the marketplace a little longer, hoping that maybe somebody needs you. But, but the landowner goes, into the, goes to the marketplace. He hires the, the best workers first. This is how it w- would work. And then the other people are still hanging out, hoping to get hired. But they're the, left, they're the leftovers. They're the outcasts. They're the people that nobody really wanted to hire. You're going to work hard on that leg or, you know, you're like 97 years old. How are you going to harvest? How many grapes are you really going to harvest in the full day's work? So a denarius is a typical day's wages. This is fair. This is normal. Working less than a, a full day, it would be normal for you to receive something proportional to that. It's just how the world still works. It's how it worked back then. Um, this is a hard life, but this is what people would expect. So sometimes this landowner in this parable is interpreted as hiring extra workers because he's in something of a panic. Like, I need more people. I need more people. But I don't really see that's how it's presented in the text. He's moved to hire these workers when he sees them idle. It's like, why don't you have anything to do? Well, nobody hired us. And I think he has compassion on them. Um, these are probably, again, on the 11th hour, these are the elderly, the sick, the disabled, maybe people that nobody else liked, members of a despised group of some, of some sort. They're not expecting much when hired, but they're faced with the prospect of going hungry, and any little thing counts in that kind of a um, situation. Now, I like the way the ancient world works with hours better. I, I've never understood that the first hour is 1 a.m., of the day. Like why is one in the morning? I don't understand that. But if you're reading in the text, the first hour, unless your Bible translates it for you is six in the morning. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? Okay. So the first hour is six in the morning. They go in the marketplace and people are work from 6am to 6pm. And if you've ever been to Israel, I haven't, but I've heard, uh, it gets very, very hot in the afternoon. And this is not, would not be pleasant work to work through, you know, the a noon, one, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. But so you have some people who've been working from 6 a.m. And then at 5 p.m., it's starting to cool down. It's not, not so difficult of work. You have all these people hobble in that nobody else wanted. And they're probably not working very well for that last hour. They can barely, um, barely harvest anything. And they harvest for an hour. And then he starts paying his workers. And those, those people who probably weren't that productive and only came in for one hour when it was already cooling off, they get to denarius. And you're thinking, score. If they got a denarius, I'm at least getting 12. Because I know I worked harder than they did, and I worked all day, and I worked in the hot, hot, hot sun. So this is, you're thinking, this is pretty good. But then the next group comes, and the next group comes, and the next group comes, and everybody gets a denarius. Now, I, I'll be honest here. I really do identify with these people working all day that this is not fair. <laughs> this is not how I've lived my life. This is not how I see work going. If I work all day and somebody else worked an hour, I better get paid more than they do. That's not fair. That's, that would, that's how my heart works. I don't know about yours, but they, that's, this is their response. How can you give them the same amount 
that you gave me when I worked for 12 hours in the heat of the day. They worked one hour in the evening. This isn't fair. But the landowner reminds them that he's done them no wrong. They agreed to a denarius. He paid them a denarius. And their problem is envy. They're jealous because of the generosity of the landowner. But he has the right to do whatever he wants with his money. I think the interpretation of this parable is pretty straightforward. I don't think it's hard to understand. The landowner represents, as he does in pretty much all of Jesus' parables, God. Working in the vineyard represents work done in the kingdom of heaven. The early workers here are the disciples. This is a a parable given as a corrective to Peter. Um, He affirms that they will have the reward and inherit eternal life. But the kingdom of heaven is not, not about earning. And it's not about rank in the kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom is all about grace. The later workers likely represent the rabble. That in Jesus' day, the rabble that's following him around, that, that nobody really sees is that value. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, how valuable are they? And just, just think with me for a moment. If God were to put you in charge, if God were to put me in charge of building the kingdom of heaven, and thankfully he hasn't. But if, if I were in charge of building the kingdom of heaven, I would probably want some Bible scholars I would take some hard-working blue-collar workers. Um, yeah, those are great. Some pastors, some teachers, some some moms and dads who love their children, raise them right, have well-behaved kids. I, a lot of the, a lot of people like you in this room. I, those I would choose. I would choose those people. But honestly, I, tax collectors and prostitutes would not be very high on my list. If I'm compiling a kingdom, a kingdom for God, a kingdom of heaven, uh, yeah, I'll leave off the tax collectors and prostitutes. Uh, but these would be people that you and I would leave off. They have very little to offer from, from a worldly perspective, very little to offer. Um, what, would they, what would they really add? They don't deserve the same reward as those who followed Jesus from the beginning and basically lived good, good lives. But God's economy doesn't work the way that our economy does. So in your, in your notes, in your bulletin, first point here, in God's economy, hiring, hiring is based purely in grace. Hiring is based purely in grace. God does not bring people into his kingdom based on who they are or how much value they add to his kingdom. Being a member of the kingdom is pure and unadulterated grace. God did not choose his workers based on their merits. And you know this truth if you've been in the church for any length of time. I know that we know this, but it's so easy to forget. You do not and you cannot merit salvation. It must be accepted as a gift. And that's what it is. Secondly, in God's economy, wages are based purely in grace. They are, they are not earned or merited. You cannot work your way into the kingdom. You cannot work your way into God's favor. All that we have in Christ is based in his work not ours. All that we have in Christ is based in his work, not ours. The, the wage represented in this parable, I believe, I believe based on the context in chapter 19, it's eternal life. That's what the wage is. The disciples were promised eternal life if they gave up everything and they followed Christ and they're going to get what they, they were promised. They're going to receive eternal life. But many other people who do not deserve eternal life, thinking of myself and, and of you, we will also receive that same wage. Now, imagine with me that, that we're we're entering into the kingdom of, of heaven and I'm standing next to Peter and Peter says to Jesus, wait a second. I, I, I left my family. I left my old way of life. Um, I was crucified for the sake of the kingdom. And he points to me and this guy lived a pretty easy life. He didn't leave his family behind. He didn't have to give up those kinds of relationships 
And I'm assuming that I'm not going to get crucified. <laughs> I mean, things could change. But uh, that's just my working assumption at this point in my life. But I could see how you say, how, how, how just is that? I gave up all this. I did all this. And you're letting this guy in. And I think it's easy for us to maybe look at other people and say, well, look at me and look at them. But there's always somebody higher up the rank. than You are already always somebody who, who could say that they gave up more than you did. Um, so you know what? You actually do. You get the same wage that Peter does. So do I. We get eternal life. Do you deserve it? No. Do I deserve it? No, I don't. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve God's salvation. We don't deserve to be members of the kingdom. It's pure, unadulterated grace. And I I hope you're thankful for that. So although the truth of God's unmerited grace, uh, gift of grace, is a wonderful doctrine, it's very difficult sometimes for us to accept Um, It's so different from the world's economy. It's really in the eyes of the world. It's scandalous. If you hear that story the way I hear it, it, I find that scandalous. I believe that when people work hard, they should get paid more than people who don't. That is the way I live my life, the way I operate. If I were to hire 12 people to work out in my fields, the people who worked harder and longer would get paid more than the people who worked one hour um, towards the end of the day. My whole life, I've operated under that assumption. And in most of my jobs, this has been the truth. You work hard. You get more. That's the way it works. In the world, you're hired based on your merit, and you're compensated based on the value added to your employer's bottom line. But in the kingdom, everything is a gift. And being a grace-filled community, which is something I hope that Sunset Bible Church aspires to be, means operating according to a different set of values. We operate according to a different set of values. Really quickly, because I know that this is a question that pops up, I could imagine hearing, reading this passage and thinking, asking the question about rewards. Does this mean that there are no rewards in heaven or are there? And I, I do think that the Bible actually gives some basis for understanding that there are some rewards based on, on the way that we live our lives. Now, interestingly, salvation is always based by, in grace. You're never saved based on your works or anything that you're, you've done. But every judgment in scripture is, is according to works. And there's other passages I won't get into this morning that seem to indicate some level of rewards. This parable is not dealing with that question. That's a different question. But with um, eternal life. Those who obtain um, salvation obtain the same salvation. I'm not going to get more eternal life or less eternal life than you are. <laughs> you get eternal life or you don't get eternal life. There's not half eternal life or a quarter eternal life or 1.5 eternal lives. It's eternal life or not. And I think that's the point of this passage. You don't get more or less than somebody else. Many will inherit eternal life that don't deserve it. All of us. So some thoughts and application of this parable. We must not see, and I know we know this, but this is so important. We must not see people We must not look at each other based on the value that we add to the kingdom. That's the way that the world looks at people is how much value do they add as, as members of, of the kingdom of heaven, a different kingdom. We don't look at people that way. I think we have to resist work comparison. I I think there's this phrase that that, um, goes around in churches. Sometimes that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It might be true. But I think that's kind of a dangerous thing to say sometimes. It's very easy to be looking at other people and say, I do more than they do. And it's kind of hard of comparison. And I think that's a danger in a lot of different ways. It's dangerous in the church. I think it's dangerous in a marriage to look at your, your husband and your wife and say, I'm doing this and this and this and this. And what are they doing? I think that's a, that's a, that's a dangerous thing to do. It, it is not grace, is it? It's seeing your relationship based on works or on merit. It's a dangerous thing to do with your children. 
I've done all these things for you. Is this, a, is this a tempting thing to say as a parent, if you're a parent? I've done all these things for you, and look, you left your room messy. <laughs> um, well, I slaved in the kitchen all day long, and, and you, you're just following me around, making messes. I, I know that's a, that's a tempting thing to say. That's a tempting thing to say, but th- does, that in, does that show a heart of grace, or does that show a heart of works? And uh, we are called to be people of grace and we live by grace. We need to be wary of the I deserve and she doesn't deserve type of language that, that usually, maybe we say it out loud, but for me, it's usually going on in my head, but it does affect my attitudes and it affects the way that I, I deal with other people. We need to be a grace filled person. We need to have grace filled families, grace filled communities. And really the, the best response to grace is gratitude. And if there's one heart attitude that should, that should typify a Christian is a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude because we realize how much we've been given and how little we deserve. And that should impact the way that we see ourselves. I'm going to move into the, a little bit more of chapter um, 20 here, verse 17. I'm just going to read a couple verses, say a couple of things and then, and then move on. Um, chapter seven, uh, verse 17, chapter 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Now this is the third time in Matthew's gospel that he says he's going to be crucified. Um, and real, real quickly, one of the things that I've, when I've read this before, Wow, the disciples are so dumb. They, he says so many times that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised. And like, what does he mean? What does he mean by that? It doesn't really make sense. So I don't have time to, to sketch out all of the evidence for this, but really interesting if you study it, that the, if you look at the Jewish understanding of resurrection in those days, and if you look at the Greek understanding of resurrection in those days, nobody would have been prepared for what happened with Jesus. Nobody was expecting that. If you remember with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, um, when, when Jesus indicates that he's going to raise him from the dead, they like, yeah, we believe he'll be raised in the last day. They believed in a resurrection at the, in the last day, but the idea of resurrection in the now was a completely foreign type of concept to them. And in the Greek idea, the idea of the body being resurrected was a completely foreign concept because they saw the body as kind of a, a bad thing that your soul wanted to be um, saved from. So this idea of a bodily resurrection now and not in the future was a completely foreign idea. So when Jesus says, I'm going to die and be raised again, but he's also the Messiah and he's going to rule, that all doesn't go together for them. That doesn't make any sense. So it must be a parable because this doesn't make sense. And that's why the disciples kind of look dumb sometimes is they really just don't anticipate this or understand it. But really here's the point here is Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection, but the disciples requests that they're about to make here are going to show that they don't understand his mission or his values. Let's move into this request. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine and these two sons are James and John um, one or to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, yes, we're able. 
He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus said to them, uh, called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now I think it's kind of funny. The disciples are here too, because he talks to them, but they send their mom to make this request. So (laughs) I think that's kind of funny. And if I were in that, in the other disciples shoes, that would really irritate me. But, but think about their mom for a second, because she's with them following Jesus and we know from the other, the rest of the gospels that actually many of these women that followed Jesus, they actually paid the paychecks. They're the ones who are financing Jesus's ministry. So this is somebody who has also left her family and, and everything else. And she's following Christ with her sons. And she's probably helping to provide for Jesus and his disciples. And she's just saying, Hey, I, we've done this for you. How about you do this for me? And that's, that's the way that she's operating. Um, and to her, this sounds like a reasonable request. I give you something, you give me something. Again, this is the way that the world works. I pay you, I receive something in return, especially in an honor, shame type of society that they lived in. But the disciples want to be great in the kingdom. But the path to greatness in the kingdom goes to the cross. The path to greatness in the kingdom goes to the cross. And although they want to believe that they're able to follow in Jesus' steps, and we know if we go a little bit further on in the story that they're not able to do what they think they can do, they've yet to grasp the implications of this. Greatness in the kingdom of this world is achieved by attainment of possessions or status. Greatness in the kingdom of this world operates by exercising authority and power over other people. In the kingdom of this world, uh, in the kingdom of heaven, greatness is achieved by giving up of yourself and using your power and authority to serve and benefit other people. Remember Philippians chapter two, that Jesus did not see equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and came in the form of a servant and died even death on the cross. The incarnation, Jesus becoming one of us is an act of grace. And so the Christian understanding of power and position is we shouldn't think of using power and position for ourselves, or I deserve this, or maybe I, I think this phrase, sometimes they even say it out loud, I'm the boss or I'm the dad, that kind of thing that you use your position for yourself. Well, shouldn't I be um, listened to and obeyed? No, we, we shouldn't think in terms of deserving, but as those forgiven by grace and accepted into the kingdom by grace, it is central to who we are to serve as we have been served. That's what it means to be a Christian. I want to move into the um, part of the, the notes here that say responding to God's word and communion. And as I, as I, um, move here. I ask those who are to serve us to come forward. But the act of receiving communion is a reminder of the terms of our salvation. I don't know that when you think about salvation, if you, if you think of, oh, I, I deserve it. Or maybe when you think about your salvation, you think in terms of, wow, I really, why, why would God ever accept me? I'm not sure what heart attitude that you bring to it. But I want, you, I want to encourage you that as you receive communion this morning, as you receive the bread and the cup, to receive it the way that we receive the body and blood of Christ as a gift. This is a gift. So as you receive the bread, as you receive the cup, this is a gift. This is not something merited that when Christ died for you, he gives this to you as a gift, receive it as a gift. It's grace, pure and simple. The response to grace should always be gratitude. 
So I encourage you to receive it with a heart of gratitude. And as we receive the gift of the body and blood of Christ, we ponder about what this means on how we should conduct ourselves as men, members of, the, of Christ's kingdom. If our king gave his life as a ransom for us, what does that mean as we follow in his footsteps? And then finally, as we receive the gift of the body of, and blood of Christ, ponder what this means for how we interact with one another. If entrance to the kingdom is by grace, not by works, if we do not merit our own salvation, but receive it as an unmerited gift, how ought this to affect our interactions with each other and what kind of community ought we to be? This bread represents the, the, the body of Christ. And it's, it's all the same size. Just, just like eternal life. This is, it's a gift. And I want us, to, as we take it, to receive it as a gift. On the night that, that Jesus was betrayed, he passed the bread and he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This represents the, the blood of Christ, which is which far too precious for any of us to ever merit. I could never deserve or earn the blood of Christ being shed for me on my behalf. It's far too precious. This too is received as a gift that Christ's blood was shed for us, for our salvation, that our sins could be paid for. What an awesome, marvelous act of grace that this represents. Receive it as a gift. Please stand with me. I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, your love for us is beyond our ability to comprehend and understand. But Father, you loved us so much that you sent your son, you sent Christ to die for us on the cross, to spill his blood for his body to be killed. And that because of that, we receive salvation as a gift, as an act of grace on your part, on his part. Father, we're so thankful. Give us hearts of gratitude and help that gratitude to infect um, the way that we speak to each other, the way that we act towards others. Help us to be people who give grace freely because we've been given grace so freely. We're thankful for your son that you've given us and grateful for the spirit that you've given us and that through whom we're bound together. And we pray in your son's name and through that spirit. Amen.